We're talking about who's your one at Hillcrest, and I hope that's a question you can answer. Uh, We're asking every disciple of Christ, whether they're young or in the middle or on the more mature side of life, uh, to ask themselves that question, who do I know who needs Jesus Christ? You know somebody that needs the Lord? Amen? I bet you do. bet you know a bunch of people need the Lord. But who's one that you can intentionally pray for and run in traffic patterns with and engage as God gives you open doors? Who's one that you can pray to God, Father, I want to see this person saved. I just can't live knowing that they don't know you as I know you. And I don't want them to be able to go to hell through Pensacola, Florida, or wherever they live, and me not even care about it. I want to care. And so help me to pray for this person. Help me to find opportunities to engage with this person so that at least I can show them that I love them and I care about them by telling them the greatest news, the news that changed my life, and that is the news about Jesus Christ. We're asking everybody who has identified a one to write their first name on one of the post-it notes out on the table in the back and then peel it off and stick it on the board. That board's getting jammed up. You say, well, there's no space on the board. Stick it on top of another name. You think you're sticking it on top of another name is going to shield that from God? It's not. So stick it on there. We'll have multiple layers of people that we're praying for. And I hope that you will do that. And uh, I want people to walk in the worship center lobby when they come to church and see that board and say, what's that all about? Let me tell you what it's all about. And so that's what we're about in these important days. Many of you are in connect groups. And if you're not in connect group, you really should be uh, because there we're doing intensive training. And I'm so thankful for all of our connect group leaders, many of whom are in this room today, who are just on board and excited about seeing people take the message of the gospel from their connect groups out into the community. And so thank you all for the sacrifice. We know that many of you invest lots of time in uh, taking your people through systematic Bible study. And so thank you for just kind of taking a little hiatus for this very important time of training. And in connect groups, we're teaching people how to use a simple tool that you can draw on the back of a napkin or that you can download on your smartphone and have it with you all the time to just quickly and simply explain what the gospel is and what it's all about and, and why it matters. We just, you know, if you want to use another tool, use it, that's fine, but have a plan. And if you don't have a plan, that's what Who's Your One really is all about, to get a plan in everybody's hands and to help remind us that we ought to be very intentional. In fact, uh, speaking of being intentional, that's the focus of our message today. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to come to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, And the fourth chapter of the fourth gospel, it's a very familiar story, uh, but it's a story about intentionality and about how Jesus was intentional about this one thing as he came and went throughout his entire three-year public ministry, and that is he was intentional about having and engaging people in meaningful gospel conversations. And you know what I mean when I use the term gospel conversation. I mean, sometimes the old school term is sharing your faith or witnessing to others. It's all the same thing. I like the phrase gospel conversations. It's been around for a few years, but I like it because that's really what we're supposed to be about. A conversation is the most basic level of communication, really, person to person. And as you read throughout the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the great studies of the gospels 
is to isolate and then analyze the conversations that Jesus had with people. I did a series back in my early years at Hillcrest uh, on conversations with Christ, and I only did eight of them. There's a bunch of them. But Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus about eternal life, uh, the new birth. He has a conversation with a demoniac about freedom. He has a conversation with a rich young man about uh, liberty and about being unshackled from the things of, of this life. He has a conversation with his most impetuous disciple uh, about overcoming failure. Y'all know what I'm, you get the picture? And so Jesus has these life-changing conversations with people, and that's a part and parcel of life. He wants us as we engage people. Every one of those conversations somehow, some way gets around to the gospel. It gets around to the subject of life, everlasting life. But none so dramatically as this conversation in John chapter 4, the one that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman about a very unusual topic to her, namely living water. This conversation is very revealing in a number of ways, and I always get frustrated. I've always preached about the Samaritan woman, the few times that I've done it over the last 25 years, in one message. And as I'm studying this week, I'm thinking, this I could do a five or six-part series just on John chapter 4. So we've got a lot of material to cover real quickly. But the bottom line, let's focus like a laser on the conversation that Jesus has uh, with this, mom, uh, this woman, because it teaches us how to have a meaningful gospel conversation with somebody that you might know or somebody even that you don't know. Let's read the first 10 verses, and then we'll jump around and skip around from there. Everybody ready to read? Say amen. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town, a, a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For disciples, uh, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you, what? Say it out loud. Living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Father, be a blessing to us this morning through this, the reading of your word. By your spirit, implant these words deep in our heart. Give us understanding of its meaning and then help us to apply it as we leave this place, go out in the world as missionaries 
with the gospel message of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Intentionality, that's what we're focusing on today. Jesus just so intentional here in this conversation as it relates to engaging uh, this Samaritan woman. And that intentionality is what stands at the heart of who's your one and impacting others as it relates to your faith so that your faith can become someone else's faith, a faith that you multiply by simply giving it away. Let's talk for a few minutes about some important components concerning having effective gospel conversations with others. A lot I can say, let's boil it down to three concepts from our text this morning. First, having effective gospel conversations simply means beginning by meeting people right where they are. You just meet them right where they are. You don't try to structure necessarily the environment. You're just willing, though sometimes that might be helpful, you're just willing to meet people for who they are, and you're willing to meet people wherever they are. Jesus is just on a journey. He's traveling from Jerusalem in the region of Judea to the south of Israel. He's traveling north, going to his home country of Galilee, in the north part of Jerusalem. And as he does, the Bible says that he had to pass through Samaria, which technically, in a geographical sense, really wasn't true. He didn't have to geographically go through Samaria. In fact, most Jews would not go through Samaria. They would go through one of several circuitous routes around Samaria because they didn't like Samaritans and they didn't want to have anything to do with their territory. In fact, that was a considered unclean territory and You'd have to clean yourself up real good ritually before you could go back and worship God in the temple if you walked through that territory. And yet Jesus does it. He risks ritual defilement by taking the most direct route on that south to north axis in those days. He had to go through Samaria, not geographically, but he had to go through Samaria because the Lord had laid it on his heart. Some things you don't have to do, you just have to do. And we don't have to share the gospel, but if you follow after Jesus Christ, you have to share the gospel. There's a compulsion in your heart and a compulsion in your life to take the precious treasure of the gospel and not hoard it, but to simply release it and to give it away. And that's why Jesus had to go through Samaria. He was going to do as he preached, go out into the highways and hedges that he might compel people to come in that the family of God might be filled up. He was on mission and he knew it. He was not only going to teach about mission, he knew he was on mission. And his mission required him to take the gospel to unclean, unsavory places and to communicate the gospel to unclean, unsavory people, to love them, as it were, by confronting them, embracing them, not embracing necessarily their choices, but embracing them as created in the image of God, loving them, into the kingdom. With that in mind, you get it, don't you? He had to go through Samaria. And when Jesus gets to the little village of Sychar, he sits down by a well. And as he does, a very famous well, Jacob's well, and as he does, a Samaritan woman, unnamed, comes by to draw water at high noon. And Jesus immediately engages her. He starts by just being nice to her. How's that for a novelty? He shows an interest in her as a person, and he makes a connection with her because there's a well, and in a well there is water, and she'd come to draw water, and 
He'd been traveling on foot, as was customary in those days, and he was hot. Jesus was fully divine, yes, but he's fully human. Jesus sweat. Jesus got stinky at times. Jesus got thirsty. His body needed hydration. And so he asks the woman after this long morning of travel in the hot part of the day to give him some liquid refreshment. And that would have been totally surprising if his disciples had been around. He'd already sent them away to buy food. And they would have immediately probably challenged what he was doing, probably gathered around him to keep it from happening, which is probably one reason why he sent them away to begin with, because most Jews that had been there would have been totally shocked and surprised that Jesus was having a conversation with this woman. In fact, the woman was surprised about it. In verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a, a woman of Samaria? And what you need to notice here is Jesus is just intentionally breaking all kinds of social barriers. He's breaking all kinds of societal taboos in order to have a connection and establish a connection spiritually with this woman. This woman is a woman. That's strike number one. So he's breaking a sexual barrier. Jews didn't talk to women. Jewish men didn't talk to their wives in public. If they were out with them in public, they would have been several feet walking behind them. And a Jewish man would not have even addressed his wife in public, much less a strange woman. And yet Jesus, don't you love it, has no inhibitions whatsoever about engaging this woman in an eternal conversation about the gospel. Not only that, strike two, she's a Samaritan woman, which actually adds not only one strike, but two strikes, because by speaking to this Samaritan, woman or not, Jesus is breaking both a racial barrier and a religious barrier. So he breaks down three barriers, sexual, racial, and religious. John adds parenthetically, in case we don't understand, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's because they considered them half-bred They had some Jewish blood and they had some Gentile blood, but they were not blue bloods. And so because of that, they were scorned and they were alienated. They were ridiculed and ostracized and to be avoided at all cost. That was true not because of the racial divide only, but it was true because they practiced a kind of a synthetic Jewish form of religion. They only adhered to the first five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, everything else they punted. They never went to Jerusalem to worship. They had nothing to do with the temple, which from a Jewish standpoint meant you don't really connect to God because God dwells in the temple. So you had to come to the temple to worship God. Well, they didn't do that. They built their own temple, which was considered blasphemous by the Jews. So you get the picture. They just didn't like each other. They were alienated in every kind of way. And so any Jew that would have seen what Jesus was doing, they would have said, he's breaking every rule in the book. No, Jesus breaks down those kind of artificial man-made barriers, and he meets her right where she is, which, by the way, is the way that he always engages people. He meets them right where they are, even when they're worshiping wrongly, even when they're believing wrongly, even when they're behaving wrongly, when when they make all kinds of poor choices. And we're going to find out in a minute, this woman made some doozies in her time. And Jesus knew it. But he also knew her need. 
And people, he also knew people have all kind of preconceived notions about what God is all about. That's true for our context. People have all kind of preconceived notions about the church, don't they? They have all kinds of preconceived notions about church people, right? We're stuck up, think we know better than everybody else, think we believe better than everybody else. We're basically all hypocrites at heart, holier than thou. Now, how are we going to show them that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, what they believe about us, namely that we eat our children for breakfast, is really not true. Well, the only way we're going to do that is by loving them in the name of Christ. The only way we're going to do that is by being willing to meet them right where they are. You don't have to condone what they do. You don't have to condone what they believe. But you have to see them for who God created them to be, people in his image who are going to live forever somewhere. Let me just say, saved people aren't the only people going to live forever somewhere. Everybody lives forever somewhere, just to different places. And so the first step in having gospel conversations with others is to show others that we really do value them, that we care about them, and we're willing to engage them by meeting them wherever they are. Everybody tracking with me? Say amen. Now, second part of having gospel conversations, you can't just do that. It's got to be an intentional direction in the conversation. The, the conversation has to go somewhere. And so that means you transition the everyday conversation at some point to the gospel. That's what makes it a gospel conversation. You actually ha- get this. You actually have to talk about the gospel, which means you have to talk about certain things concerning the gospel. In Jesus' case here, What began as a simple conversation was radically redirected by our Lord. It began as a conversation about drinking water, just a common everyday element of life. And that's where you and I can begin with all kinds of people. They're serving a restaurant or a mechanic working on a car or somebody that you know at work or whatever the case might be. You just take whatever is facing you immediately and start talking about it. But then, and it may not happen immediately, it may take a little bit of time, as God provides an opportunity, you got to figure out some way to transition that conversation to the water. you got to figure out how to move the conversation from drinking water to living water. That's what I mean. That's what Jesus does. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have, get, get this, he would have given you living water. Now we really got a conversation going because he's not really sure, she's not really sure what Jesus is talking about here. That's a great example. Water is a great example to do what Jesus is trying to accomplish here. And that is because there's a direct equation between water and life. You cannot have life if you don't have water. Isn't that right? Uh, And wherever there is water, there is always the presence of life. I was watching a PBS documentary uh, taking place in the Middle East and uh, in Oman. And Brian, it was a situation where these guys were repelling. They, they have a deal over there. Maybe you'll take me there sometime. It looks like the Grand Canyon. It's the Middle Eastern version of the Grand Canyon. The biggest canyons in the world are there. And these guys are repelling down. I mean, I got dizzy just watching it on high-definition television. I couldn't believe it. These guys were crazy. And yet they were really good. And yet they would go down in stages and they came as rocky, barren, dusty, arid, hot. 
And they came to one point and there was water coming out of a rock. And right there where that water was coming out of a rock in this little kind of indented area, in this place where they stopped to overnight, there were frogs jumping around on the rocks and little green sprigs coming out of the rocks. I'm just saying wherever there's water, there's life. And so a very fitting conversation here. And yet Jesus takes a very common thing, points to it, and makes the move from this discussion about something physical that gives life to our bodies to something spiritual that gives life to our souls. He talks about living water. Now that woman would have understood that because that was a common everyday term. Living water was just the opposite of what we would call standing water. Water in a well was standing water. And it was iffy when it came time to drink it because you didn't know if it was gonna make you sick or be okay. It might be fetid water. It might be water that's not worthy to drink. It might give you cholera. But if water is running in a stream, they call that living water, and they would consider that safe to drink all the time because it was active. Stuff didn't have a chance to grow in living water. And so when Jesus starts talking to her about living water, that's probably the way that she thought in the initial stages of the conversation. But we know Jesus is using the phrase in a gospel sense, not in a river sense. It's kind of like he did with the phrase born again one chapter earlier when he's talking to Nicodemus. He he takes a common everyday aspect of physical life, namely the birth of a child, and then he turns it, transitioning the conversation into something spiritual and eternal by telling the man, you must be what? You must be born again. Well, that's what he does here with the woman. So living water represents just the power of God to transform by giving eternal life and eternal satisfaction to whomever receives it. And there are two things that Jesus says about the living water. Number one, it's a gift. Living water is a gift from God. That's exactly what he says. It's not a reward for good deeds. It's not a a, a recompense for meritorious service. It's a gift. That means it has to be received. And the fact that Jesus is offering this gift from God, namely the gift of the power of God to transform her life, the fact that Jesus is offering it to this Samaritan woman is a beautiful reminder that it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, it doesn't matter what your station in life, what family you were born into, it doesn't matter whether you were a super elite Pharisee whose name was Nicodemus at the top of the totem pole or a low rent woman who'd been married five times, it's not even named here, at the low end of the totem pole, living water is available to everybody who will receive it as a gift from God. And it's a reminder that as Jesus offers it to this woman and she looks around trying to find a, a, a stream, I've been coming to this well for years. I don't know any running water. I don't know any living water around here. Where do you get this living water? You don't even have anything to draw with. And we've been coming to draw from this well forever. Our father Jacob planted this well. You're telling me you got water better than his water? What you're offering is better than what the patriarch offers? Man, that'll preach right there. Yeah. Jesus said yes. Matter of fact, I do. So she doesn't immediately understand what's going on which is a reminder that most people don't know what they really need either. She didn't know what she really needed. 
And most people that you come in contact with won't know what they really need. That's why we've got to deliver it to them. Because most people out there in the world are chasing after what they think they really need. What do most people think they really need? 4,000 square foot house? $70,000 car? Clothes from the finest department stores? Retirement accounts bulge. In fact, most people think they need to be retired at 42. Or they'd like to be. That's what people are chasing after. Things that money can buy, right? Most people have no clue what they really need. We know what they really need, and we're the delivery system that God designs to get it to them. What they need is the gospel. And that takes us to the second part. This living water is a gift from God, and here's the second thing about it. Only Jesus can give it. And that's why we need a delivery system. God's people, changed by Jesus, are charged to deliver the message of Jesus to those who need Jesus. If you knew the gift of God and who it is, who it is. See, the fact of the matter is Jesus is the living water. Amen. If you knew who it is saying to you, you would have asked and he would have given you, he would have given you living water. And that's just an important reminder that Jesus is the heart of the gospel. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ because Jesus is the living water. So a gospel conversation always marked by a focus on Jesus. Remember he saying that last week? If in your gospel conversations the subject of Jesus Christ never comes up, here's the newsflash, you're not having a gospel conversation. Jesus and the presence of Jesus and the subject of Jesus is what makes it a gospel conversation. In fact, there are two things that make it a gospel conversation that you and I have to eventually get around to. One of them is Jesus, and here's the other one, and you're not going to like it. The other one is sin. Newsflash number two, you can't have a gospel conversation if you don't talk about sin. You see, the reason that the gospel is good news is because We're in a condition that's really bad news. The good news makes no sense apart from a revelation of the bad news. And so for people to even process why it's good news, they got to understand the bad news first. And here's the bad news. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Now, see, Jesus didn't have a problem talking with people about sin, but it's not hard to talk about sin when you're a Jew talking to a Samaritan on Samaritan territory, breaking all these barriers down, showing the person that you really care about them and that you love them and you don't care what other people think about it. And in my caring and concern, let's just, you know, be totally honest. And that's when Jesus starts talking about her sin. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband, Come here. And the woman answered him, well, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, well, you're right in saying I have no husband, but you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. So what you say is true. Let me commend you for telling the truth. And her eyes were probably that big around. And she's looking around. I want to know how he knew that. This woman was considered low rent. Have you ever considered why she's the only woman that shows up there? Nobody drew water in the heat of the day at 12 noon 
And drawing water, by the way, was a woman's work. Where are the other women? They'd already come and gone hours before because you drew water before the sun came up because it was what? Cool. Nobody drew water in the middle of the day. It was too hot. She did. You know why? Because that kept her from being around the other women who despised her and who wanted nothing to do with her. In fact, this recognition of Jesus makes his interaction with the woman even more remarkable. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. She's a sinful Samaritan woman to the nth degree. Nobody likes to talk about sin. Jesus doesn't shy away from it, and we can't either because the gospel is good news as a result of the bad news. And the bad news has to be addressed before the good news makes any sense. And let me just say, you always have to get around discussion of sin. Those of you that are studying three circles know that you do that, right? Let me, act, let me just say, exercise caution here. Take care. You don't look at that person that you're talking to about the Lord and say, here's the thing, brother, you're going to burn like a french fry if you don't get it right. Not a good way to address sin. Identify with the person. Here's what I know about sin. And here's the thing. I'm included. In fact, I'm probably a bigger sinner than you are. And God saved me. And I still don't get it right. But I have a merciful God. You say, well, Jesus didn't know this person or had never met this person and yet knew. Here's the thing. I don't have the insight that Jesus has. No, but you still know that person is a sinner because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. So you know the same thing about everybody that you're talking to that Jesus knew about her only without the specifics. And you have to address that. You do it, the Bible says, with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that lies within you, but do it with gentleness and respect. Not necessarily full agreements. You may not agree with their choices or the way that they're living or even what they believe, but you can still engage them with gentleness, tenderness, and respect. Everybody with me say amen. Having gospel conversation. You meet people right where they are. Transition the conversation at some point to the gospel. And then finally, invite them to respond. Invite them to respond. Don't leave people dangling. Draw the net. When it's time to draw the net in the right way, the right time, invite them to respond. Jesus recognizes there's a universal thirst in every human soul for God. I love how Psalm 42 begins. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee. My soul thirsts for the living God. And Jesus knew that that was true for this woman. She had a thirst that the water that she was drawing couldn't quench. And everybody does. We all come into this world broken, yes, because of sin, but also we're created in the image of God, which means that we're still wired to connect with God. God wants to connect with us. And that's why everybody worships something. If we don't acknowledge God and fall down and worship him, we'll just find a substitute and worship. It ain't going to be any physical thing, any human being. 
but we'll find something to glorify with our life. God's intention is that that desire, that insatiable thirst only is satisfied in a right relationship with God through Christ. And Jesus cuts through the veneer. Verse 13 takes her straight to the gospel. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. For the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Right, Right there is an invitation for the woman to take something that's lacking in her life, something that only Jesus can give her. In fact, she asked for it in the very next verse, in verse 15. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still looking for the stream. So it's an imperfect response, but at least we have a response, amen? And it's enough of a response for Jesus to continue the conversation. And it's at this point that he goes into the sinful choices that she's making. And that's kind of what resonates in the woman's life that gets her to set up straight and to listen good and hard. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, which is always turning from sin and turning to him. And that's why those two things have to be a part of our gospel conversations with others. So oftentimes, we have this tendency and have had for years and years and years and years and years, we've had this tendency to think that really all we have to do is to live this proper, good uh, Christian example in front of people. Just make different lifestyle choices and, and decide differently and live differently and people will somehow see that and that will arrest their attention and somehow through your good and godly example get them to fling themselves down on an altar crying out to God in repentance. But it doesn't really work that way. I mean, you know, you're living a good and godly life is kind of like what's required to be salt and light. But at some point, you got to open up your mouth and you got to use words. You're living a Christian life is a good thing. The only problem is not all of us are always real consistent with that, are we? Because we're not perfect this side of heaven. Now, let me, let me make a radically uh, important statement here today. Y'all listening? Amen? The gospel requires words. It, it requires words. Have you ever heard the, <clears throat> the old saying, uh, preach the gospel If necessary, use words. That's the silliest statement a man ever invented in the history of the world. That's like saying, feed the hungry. If necessary, use food. Nobody would ever say that. But it's just as ridiculous. No, the gospel requires words. The greatest Christian example who ever lived was Jesus Christ. And he still had to open up his mouth and tell people who he was. Amen. And we have to do the same thing. And that's what he does. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
And notice what the woman does, verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, we know that the woman responded to the gospel because of those two things that she does right there. One, she leaves her water jar behind. I'm telling you what, you read the gospel of John, you do yourself a favor to sit down in a kitchen chair at the kitchen table and read it real slow. Because every detail matters in the gospel of John. Don't just gloss over, she left her water jar. Because that's very significant. That water jar represented her old life, a life of drudgery a life of despair, a life of meaningless, a life of purposelessness. And the fact that she literally drops it, the most valuable thing that woman owned, she drops it and leaves it behind after hearing these gospel words from the Lord Jesus Christ is critical. She left something physical that would not last for something spiritual and eternal, living water that would last forever. And get this, living water always produces a living faith. What does she do? She leaves her water jar and goes running into the village. And John tells us that she was leaving her old life behind, that life of drudgery. And what does she do? She goes into town and she invites others to come and join her. Hey, 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 come see a man who told me everything I ever did. She leaves her old life behind and she gives her new life away. And the beautiful thing about that is this woman has a one before having a one was cool. Only her one was her whole hometown. Amen. She invited every one of them to come and see a person she believed to be the Christ. Who's your one? God saves us to engage people. He wants us to bring glory to him. That's why we're here. One of the ways that we do that is through a life of living faith. A life committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. Where we meet people wherever they are. Get around to talking to them about the gospel. And then inviting them to respond to Jesus who is their only hope. That, brothers and sisters, is how you have meaningful gospel conversations with others. God, help us to be committed to do it in Jesus' name. This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen this morning.